as we know, right, there are uh, certainly unusual Gemarot, maybe even odd or bizarre Gemarot, and some of them deal with issues of demons and the Satan. So we're going to take a look today at some of those Gemarot. And again, those who are more inclined towards the occult might have no problem accepting that all at face value, which is fine with me. I just want you to realize that if you think that Judaism should not believe in demons, you are not the first Jews in history to think so. And to realize you could be part of a tradition where people uh, will not accept that. Okay, so let's look at, thank you very much, Alicia. Okay, let's look at some examples of where the Gemara does talk about the demonic and different ways people have navigated it. Okay, so let's start with the first source with the Gemara in Makot. So the Gemara in Makot says, it's talking about warning, right? We have an idea that you give a warning to the criminal. And the Gemara says, who could give that warning? Amarava Matresh Amru, who could give the warning? You can actually warn yourself. Like you can, I guess, call out, I'm about to Michal Shabbos. I know I really shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Kind of warn yourself. Even if it comes from a demon. That's the simplest explanation of the word shade. So it sounds like this command code is affirming the existence of demons. And it's even almost allowing them a role in Jewish law. Right? They could give a warning. Like a demonic force could you. I guess it's kind of a a nobly motivated demonic force. Don't do that at school, Shabbat. And that would count as a warning. Now, you might ima- imagine that the Rambam would be the perhaps the rabbinic Jew most likely to not believe in demons, or certainly in the top 10. So look how the Rambam quotes this halacha. It's a great example of how someone doesn't give an explicit comment, but it's clear what they're trying to do. So the Rambam says... Whether you warned from one of the witnesses, right? A woman could give hatra. He's like relaxing the principles. Look what he says now. Even if I heard the voice of the warner, when I didn't see it, so somebody voice called out that counts. And look at the next case, even if you warned yourself. What has the Rambam subtly done here? Notice it's juxtaposed to the case of warning yourself. What did the Gemara juxtaposed with warning yourself? It juxtaposed a demon. What is the Rambam juxtaposed with warning yourself? A voice that called out, which you can't identify where the voice came from. For the Rambam, that's what the Gemara means by a demon. It's a force. I don't know where it came from, but it doesn't mean there are actually demons in the world. Like It just means I can't identify where this voice came from. So you could think the Rambam is apologetic, but Rambam is pretty hot. There aren't demons in the world. And if the Talmud talks about demons, right, Rambam will say, didn't mean that. Right? The demon is a voice that I can't identify. Okay. I'm going to try to make what seems perhaps a little bit apologetic in the Rambam. I'm going to try to make it more convincing now. Okay, there is kind of a little bit of a humorous Gemara in Psachim. I don't know if I should laugh at this, but I admit it is a bit humorous. Where the Gemara seems to think it's dangerous <laughs> to do things in pairs. It's not obvious why it's dangerous. In, sorry, I mean in even numbers. That somehow it seems like the demonic forces are more uh, akin to starting up with you with even numbers. Okay, so let's see this Gemara. So it's pretty remarkable Gemara because the Gemara first says, wait, how can we have four cups of wine on Seder night? It's dangerous. 
Because three or five would be safe. Four, the demonic forces will get you. So look at the Gemara, guys. Below Yivchetulo Me'arba, no less than four. I'm in source three. Hehi Metakni Rabbanan Midi Da'ati Balidei Sakana. How could the rabbis establish something dangerous? This is not fair. Vatanya, didn't we learn? Lo yochal adam tray, don't eat twos. Lo yifta tray, don't drink twos. And the assumptions mean not just two, but even numbers. So the Gemara gives three answers why we don't have to worry. Amr of Nachman, Amr Kra, Lil Simurim, Lil Hamishumar, Ubam and Hamazikin. There seems to be an idea that we're especially protective in Pesach night. Same, we even heard the idea that maybe we don't say the regular Kriyachma on the bed because we're protected. Oh, sorry, there's a special protection. Number two, Rav Amar, Koshel Bracha, a Kosh involved in ritual blessing. Mitzdarif Litovai joins for good. They know Mitzdarif It's not a problem. So as long as you're doing a Koshel Bracha, some ritual Bracha cup, you're okay. Now, Ravina is, in fact, the most intriguing answer. Number three, Ravina Amar, Arba Kasi, Takina Ravan, and There are four cups of wine we're supposed to drink. Pochad Vachad Mitzvah Banfei Nafshi. Ah, only a Talmudic Jew can appreciate this. What's the claim? We're not having four cups of wine, but rather on one four each. occasions we are having one, one cup of wine. Each one has its own identity. Each cup of wine is associated with a particular mitzvah. Right, The first cup of wine goes with Kiddush, the second one with Magid, with telling the story, the third with Benching, with Birkat Amazon, the fourth with Halel. Maybe each one has its own identity. Yeah, let's just review. The last time we shouldn't have four cups of wine, it's dangerous. The demonic forces attack pairs, attack even numbers. Three answers no, this night's special, or it's a kosher bracha, or it's not four, it's four ones. Now, you might say, but based on this, we still accept the principle that even numbers are dangerous. Okay, but now comes really a great Kamara. This is one of my favorite Kamara. See, they hit this great Kamara at the end of Psachim. You have to make it to the 110th page of Psachim to get there. Like only for the uh, only for the steadfast you actually get here. Okay, so it says in source four, and this is really interesting. The Marava in the west, which is Israel, right, bubbles to the east, low kapti azugi. They didn't care about pairs. Now, this might indicate that there's a cultural element here also. That it might be that Palestinian Jewry was more, for lack of a better term, superstitious about these things than Babylonian Jewry. Because here we had this whole thing that, oh, be very careful with even numbers. And we even raise a question about the Seder night. And now we're being told that they don't worry about this in Bavel. Now, sorry, they don't worry about this in Israel is what I meant to say. So I got it backwards. I'm like, we go back for a second. Palestinian Jew was not worried about it. Babylonian Jew was worried about it, right? The West is Israel. And now we have a counter story. Now, Narda is Bavel, so it fits. Ravdimi was very careful. Even about markings on a barrel, right? He would say, I'm going to make sure there's four marking. Go make, make sure there's not four, there's three or five or seven. So notice again, we have this split. In the West, in Israel, they don't care. And in Babel, they do care. So I just want to point out, in theory, we have another approach. Those who, like me, are kind of not so into Judaism and demons. So before we had Rambam, like, rereading a source. In theory, someone could say, we're not going to reread sources, but very often, there's more than one approach in Chazal. So maybe we could say, we think the Israelis were right and the Babylonians were wrong. Right? In Israel, they didn't worry about it. In Bavel, they did. So I don't think we would have to reread sources to have a position. We could sometimes say there's a very strong variety of approaches in our tradition. 
and we'll identify with these and we'll identify with others. So we us up a little bit that we wouldn't have to reread every source that talks about the demonic. Even as it may, then the Gemara goes to something even more interesting. Okay, we read out this first interesting thing, this Palestine bubble split, that they only worry about these things in Bavel. Look what the Gemara says now on the second line. Klala de Milta, what's the rule of the matter? Hold the cupid, if you worry about them, they worry about you. Udo low cupid, but if you don't worry about them, low cupid by day, then they don't worry about you. And now the Gemara throws one thing in that might make it a little bit tricky. But it's good to have some modicum of concern. So the theory of the Gemara is giving us an out. Which is, if you don't worry about them, they worry about you, you're good to go. So just don't worry about them. But then it says, but it's good to be a little bit concerned. But already I think you can all see where things are going here. If the Gemara says, if you don't worry about them, they don't worry about you, couldn't you take that to mean that there's a very strong psychological element here? Again, you could say, I don't know the rules of demonology. Maybe there's someone in this group who's a demonology expert. So maybe you could say, I don't know, the demons only bother people who bother them. They're willing to be ignored, but once you interest your interest, they'll get you. In which case, it's not psychological. But again, the mere fact that your interest or your concern creates the problem could indicate it's psychological. So let us go to the Meirian Source 5. Now, the Meiri is from Provence in the 1200s, but he's very much in the Rambam camp and being kind of a medieval rationalist. So he also does not want to believe in demons. Look what he says over here. This is really remarkable. In many places we've explained, in those times, people were pulled after the masses. I mean, the masses had superstitious beliefs and they had an effect. Now, you might say, okay, we should get rid of them. But he says something very interesting. I think it really, you know, people like me need to hear this sometimes. Because sometimes we want to, we're like truth seekers, we want to fight every battle. As long as there was nothing pagan about them, then the sages did not feel the need to uproot them. They might say, no, the sages should fight every stupidity. But I think we love to pick our battles in life. I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a neighbor who believes that passing a black cat, black cat in your pants is dangerous, right? So you think it's stupid, you think it's foolish, but do you really need to spend like eight hours arguing with them? How much is their life adversely affected by that belief? So I think at that point, you might if you feel, I admit someone could say, no, no, it shows that they have the wrong way about the world. It's dangerous ultimately. Fine. Be married, but not to be battle has to be fought. So I'm going to say two more things. One is, I'll take comments in one second, guys. Just give me two more minutes. One is, here he says that um, the reason why people got hurt is because they really believed it. Like it was a self fulfilling prophecy. Like if you really believe that when a black cat passes your path, something's going to happen, it affects you psychologically. So he takes the Gemara psychosomatic. And again, here you might have thought, oh, that's super apologetics. That the Gemara is a line that supports it. Right? The Gemara said, if you don't worry about them, they don't worry about you. So I think the Meiri does have some support here. I'd like to make one more point, and out of intellectual honesty, raise one difficulty with the Meiri, then I'll open the floor if people have questions. One more point to be made here is maybe Chazal took something even more clever. It's- 
If somebody's mic is, I think it might be one person who's not muted. Maybe if you could just mute yourself briefly. Okay, that'd be great. Okay, thank you. I'm still hearing, unless I'm the background noise. I don't know. Okay, um, maybe Hazal even more clever. Let's say someone comes to me and says, I'm really nervous because a black cat. Very good to see you. A black cat just crossed my path. What if I say to him, that's stupid? It could be I'm not doing him a favor because he's just insulted. He's not going to accept it. What if I say, I have good news. Black cats don't cause any danger between 12 in the afternoon and 6 at night. Right? <laughs> so I haven't forced him to police, but I've given him an out clause where he can become, oh, black cats really are a problem. Hopefully it doesn't apply here. Couldn't you say that's what Hazal are doing here? Right? Then we give you this foursome, foursome of cups on Pesach night. You have this Babylonian belief that even numbers are dangerous. They go, no, don't worry. It's actually four ones. Maybe that's a way of keeping you calm without having to challenge your fundamental belief. Okay, last point here, and then I'll open the floor if anybody wants. I think, again, I obviously am more drawn to this Meiri. One could say, well, Gemara conclude you should be a, have a modicum of concern. That last line might be difficult for Miri because the best thing might be just like if you ignore them, it'll turn out there won't be a problem. But just before questions or comments, and buddy, you can also write in the chat if you want. I think it is interesting here that both these Marot, both Rambam and Miri deny the existence of the demonic. Right? When the Gemara talked about a shade, a demon giving you a warning, Rambam says it's a disembodied voice that you can't identify where it came from. When the Gemara says, don't do things in even numbers because it's dangerous, the demonic forces get you, the Miri says, you're just reflecting the popular beliefs. And that's the issue in Palestine and Israel. Okay, does anybody have a comment or question on the first part? Okay, it's okay if the answer is no also. So see if anybody has a comment or question. Okay, I think we're good. One, one, yeah, one comment. One comment. Yeah, please, Mom. How your son Mordechai answered people thinking that something had been heaven sent when he came down from the ninth floor of the hospital to the eighth floor and turned out to be the tenth man making a minion. And the people started saying, Oh, Shemayim, and all kinds of things, how wonderful he was sent. And he said, Lo, become a cheat. It's supposed to be the ninth okay. floor. <laughs> As I should have realized that my mother would not be able to resist telling the story about her grandson. Okay, well done, Mom. <laughs> Yeah, the vast motivations why my mother speaks up in cheer, but that's a strong one. Okay, great. <laughs> okay. Wouldn't the rabbi? Wouldn't the uh, tell a story about their grandchild is also invited? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> now, wouldn't the concern regarding a belief that is, or at least has elements of a Zara apply here? Then, when we're talking about potentially force of evil. Okay, I'm sorry. Is that Ira asking? Who's asking that just now? Dave. Dave. Uh, Dave. Dave, you're asking a very good question. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but Demiri said, as long as the belief didn't have a vote of Zara, it was okay. And you're raising an excellent question. How do you define which beliefs have a vote of Zara components? Because he might mean, I, I like your question a lot. I'm not sure I've got a great answer. He might mean it wasn't a belief associated with like a given pagan religion. It's not like the Zoroastrians had this belief. Or I don't know, whatever, the, the, the Christians had this belief, whatever you want to say. Right, but you're saying maybe it's inherently about as our like, like the idea that there are other forces. So I guess I'll just say, Dave's really very good question. Um, oh, first of all, I see we have another student, Max Weinstein. Good to see you, Max. Why, guys, 
if you see a picture of Lichtenstein Ravamital, they are not on this year. It is Max Weinstein. Max, did you graduate University of Chicago? What are you up to in life? I don't know if he's uh uh no I'm I'm on a I'm on a leave of absence right now. I'm uh I'm working. Yeah, okay. Are you in Philly? Yeah. What are you working as? Uh research assistant in a lab. Okay, great. All right. Great to see you, Max, or see uh we're looking to see Ramami calls the case maybe. Yeah, I okay, forgot great. this background was on my default. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Okay. So all right, you were looking to see Nero Ramami talk. Okay, so in, in any case, I want to answer Dave's question. Um I think you could be kind of like a Rambam purist as a monotheist. And a Rambam purist, indeed, you're right, would say admitting the existence of other cosmic forces somehow dilutes your monotheism. But I think you should realize not everybody in Jewish world, let's say you, all the people believe in angels or demons, right? They wouldn't say that they're pagans because they would say, as long as I think God's in charge, why can't God have a retinue? Why can't God? Now, again, I personally, I'm not such a believer in all those cosmic forces, but I don't think it's a bad argument. Like, let's say there's a there's a devil out there, there's a saint out there, but God's in charge. So if God has the ultimate authority, let him have these underlings that do whatever they do. Okay, so I think your question is a very good question. But maybe here's the first thing that the mere belief in their forces is not in and of itself a Bodhisattva. And therefore, as long as it's not somehow harmful, right, the sages don't have to go to war against it. But I like your question very much. I think that's what he would say. Okay, anybody else? Okay, great. Let us go now to really one of my favorite passages. I hope I apologize, but if I get too caught up in this, we might not get to the Satan. We might be stuck in demons. I just have to give another sheer on Satan. Okay, but this is really just too good. Okay, this is the Gemara in Brachot. This is perhaps the most famous Gemara about demons. Okay, Tanya Abba bin Yaman Omer. So Abba bin Yaman said, Il Malay Nitna Rishut La'ayin La'ot. Would I be given permission to see? Would we see everything that's out there? No creature could stand up before the damaging forces. Meaning, thank God, it sounds like, what's the simple reading? Thank God we don't see the demons. Because would we see them, we'd be scared to leave the house. Right? It's like uh, ignorance is bliss. Like If I actually looked out now into the old city and saw all the demons in the Rova Square, that would be it. I'd be stuck in yeshiva forever. I'd never get home. But locally, we're... So that's what Abba Binyamin says. Okay, now then, there are two things some of you may be familiar with. It's okay, we can do them by reading inside. But it says, how do you know that they're there? And how do you see them? Okay, so this really seems like one of the more bizarre Gemara. How do you know if they're there? Let me just see what the other chat comment is. Ah, okay, so Ronit, um, I hope it's okay if I say this. I, I think it's not too radical. I think even rabbinic Jews or the rations, rabbinic Jews, even the Jewish community might be somewhat influenced by their surroundings. So it might be possible that the surrounding Babylonian population was more superstitious than the one in Israel, Palestine, and maybe that played a role. Now, again, I don't know that. I'm not a classical Jewish historian, but it would not shock me if that was the case. It would be interesting to look at that, though. Why would this split play out that way? Okay, in any case, the one Brachot says. How do you see them? Sprinkle some dust on the floor, and in the morning you'll see the feet of chickens, like chicken feet footprints in the in the in the dust. Okay, in the ashes. So that's how you know that they were there. How do you see them? 
says the Gemara, take the placenta of a black cat, who's the daughter of a black cat, and the firstborn, uh, burn it up and grind it and fill your eyes with it, and then you could see them. Now, obviously, this seems quite bizarre, right? Why is it a black cat, the daughter of a black cat, uh, firstborn? What is all that about? Okay, but I want to focus not on that at first, but on the first line. Abraham and Yamin's first line again was, we are fortunate that we can't see the damaging forces, because if we could, we wouldn't be able to stand. Okay, now we are we are kind of lucky that you know when we have difficult agadot, we don't really know what to do. But Rav Cook wrote a beautiful, beautiful commentary on Agada. Unfortunately, it is only on two tractates. It is only and Shabbat, the first two Masechtot and Shas. But the great thing is, both of those Masechtot are full of Agada. So if you're only going to write a commentary on two Masechtot, on the Agadic sections, on the non-legal portions, those are great choices, Rachot and Shabbat. So his commentary is called Ein Ayah. It's actually, I think I've said this before, I just can't resist. It's one of the great titles because it's actually a triple play. Remember, his name is the older of Cook, of course. His name, his name was Avram Yitzchak HaKohen. So anytime you see the abbreviation Ayad, that's it, Avram Yitzchak HaKohen. Some of you may know the most famous collection of Agadot is called the Ein Yaakov. So Ein is telling you it's about literature. And then this is something I would not have known on my own. There's actually a phrase in Sefer Eov, one of the most obscure. Thank you, Alicia. Yeah, I have a very kind student here, Alicia, who's bringing me water. Okay, the... Uh, Say for Eov is quite obscure. But the phrase Ein Ayah appears in Eov. You get the Ayah for Ab Kohen, you get the Ein for Ein Yaakov telling you it's about Agadah, and you have an allusion to the, the phrase in Eov. Okay, so let's see what he makes of this Gemara. Here we go. Source 7. Tanya Abba bin Yaman Omer. Il Malayin in Narashut lie in the road. Would I be given permission to see? No one could stand up. There's an important note we're being told. Like the word sheket, right? To quiet the heart of humanity. What would we like? We yearn to know every secret. And we're upset when there are things we don't know. Okay, I'm now skipping to the next page. Point to where I am. Ki aleinu laamin. We should believe sheyishlenu tovag dola. There is a big help, big favor. Bimniyat haidia and a lack of knowledge. Now let me clarify. I think what Cook is saying. I don't think what Cook is saying that as a broad principle we're in favor of ignorance. I'd like to believe that is not the case. Judaism certainly seems to have valued knowledge and education very much. But like everything else in this world, maybe everything has exceptions. So I think Rav Cook might be telling us, I certainly value knowledge. And the norm is that it's good to know things. What if I say there's certain kinds of knowledge that are not helpful at all? And here I will give a couple of examples. And uh, here's my favorite example because it also relates to a, a story that happened to me I find very entertaining. Okay, let us say, I don't know if it's still true anymore. I wonder if the book has shifted. But when my wife and I were young, married, so the book to read when you were pregnant was What to Expect When You're Expecting. Okay, just they would know if that's still the book. I, I know if that's still the book uh, that you read. Maybe it's been superseded. No, okay, new editions. Day, new editions. I'm sorry? New ah, editions. Thanks, Mom. Okay, but okay. in any case, 
uh, I always thought that a nervous parent should not read that book. Because it tells you what's supposed to happen in every month, but also tells you what could go wrong in various ways. And most of the things that could go wrong are really quite rare. Not only quite rare, but knowing their can help you prevent it. Like said, take these eight preventative measures and there you don't have to worry about the fault things happening to your fetus. It's giving you the information what could happen. Now, I admit this is a personality question. Maybe a certain personality is not there that's saying, I just like to know. I'm actually calmer if I know all the things that could happen. Personality like that. But surely there's the other personality also. The personality for whom this book is just a source of anxiety. So why should someone read it if it's going to be a source of anxiety? How is that going to help them get through the pregnancy? Well, you might say, Rabbi Blah, but you're in favor of ignorance. You're covering knowledge. But I would say that's not a helpful knowledge. Not every piece of knowledge in this world is going to be finished helpful. They might choose to say, I don't need to know everything that is going to go wrong to the fetus. Okay, now I'll get to a great story in one second. I just want to use another example. Let's say someone said, oh, I grew up in New York. Right? I see there are a couple of New Yorkers here on the uh, on, on this uh, Zoom here. Okay, so let's say someone said, I can let you know, I give you it's a vision to all the gangs and violent criminals in New York. I'm not going to like stop walking around outside, like make right. Uh, will I stop taking the subway? Will I stop, you know, uh, walking around uh, Manhattan? Move out to like Long Island and only stay in suburbia. It is really helpful to have that information. So yeah, the claim would be general. We are in favor of knowledge, but just realize knowledge of harmful things is not always helpful. Then I'll go back to the Gemara. So I am once teaching this. Actually, David Sloan, you might actually know the people involved from Silver Spring. So this could be up your alley. I'm once teaching this in Midrash at Lindabell. And I mentioned this idea that knowledge is not is usually helpful, but not always helpful. And I quote what to expect when you're expecting. And believe it or not, a student in the class says, Rabbi wrote that book. It's not happening. You need to go after what to expect when you're expecting. Now, to be fair, her mother did not actually write the book. Her mother's not a doctor. Her mother's an editor. So those of you who are from Silver Spring, you might share in my zells, or maybe it was Friedman, Sharon Friedman my zells. So she helps, right? There are three doctors who write the medical information about what to expect, and then she edited them into a book. Okay, so uh, so I got a little protest. Here I was critiquing what to expect when you're expecting. When a mother had been involved in the production the book. So then she gave me a gift and I'm never going to throw out this gift. So she gave me a gift of the next volume, like what to expect the toddler years. The inscription says Dear Rabbi, sometimes knowledge is power. That's the entire inscription. Okay, so I admit I have never opened the book since she gave it to me, but it, I'm never going to throw it out because I love that inscription. Okay, but again, if we get back to the Torah, I think we're focused on something really fascinating. What is Rav Kook doing here? Rav Kook is not even taking a stand on whether demons exist or not. Maybe he believes in demons. Maybe he doesn't. But I think he's saying this isn't what's significant in life. So I would put this in a little bit of a different approach. right? The Rambam and Me'iri are in a school that wants to deny demons. So they're going to come up with interpretations why the Gemara did not really mean that demons exist. I think Rav Kook is less interested in the question of whether demons exist. He says that's a distraction. 
right? I think what that happens sometimes in life that people are really attracted to like, so to speak, cool topics. Like if we're doing a topic about the occult, everyone's going to come. Like let's say you have two choices. There are two sure being offered. One is, why is there a mitzvah called that? And the other is, does you even believe in reincarnation? Right? So very often, the reincarnation sheer will draw a bigger crowd than the Shana sheer. It has a coolness to it. It has a, a otherworldliness to it. But what if that attraction doesn't really make you a better person by right? being so interested in otherworldly topics? And the real question is, what can I learn? Right? Is there something that I could take away? But I think for Rav Cook, Abba Binyamin says, when Abba Binyamin says, oh, there we go. I'm just reading Dave's comment for one second. Wait, she wrote it by herself now. Okay, interesting. I guess she's picked up enough uh, medical knowledge along the way. Okay, Sharon, myself could do it. You could, David, please tell her that she still gets mentioned in my shiram, okay? I think she'll appreciate it. Okay, so uh, what is trying to tell us when he says, it's good we don't know about the mazik and we wouldn't go outside? So for Rav Cook, it can't have been still telling us about demons. That's not wrong. Huh? He's not the pursuit of knowledge. Realize that the pursuit of knowledge is a very powerful thing. But like everything else in life, it has limitations. Sometimes knowing about a whole host of bad things is actually not helpful. It is not always true that, by definition, knowledge is positive. Okay, so again, I want to put Rav Cook in a separate category. Not so much whether there are demons, but the mark can be just interested in clarifying whether demons exist. Okay, one more thing, uh, just to throw it out there. Okay, maybe the uh, maybe the cat lovers in the room will not be happy. But remember that last piece which said the way to see them is to take a cat? Okay, so Ruff Cook says the cats are have a bad association in our tradition. Okay, it says I'm gonna agree with it, although my daughter would be very upset with me. It says cats and the makir you don't really know their owner. Meaning, I think, I guess if we do the, if somebody might protest, but I do the contrast with dogs, I think it'll work out well. I think one can safely say the dogs tend to give owners much more affection. So, in that contrast, at least, uh, insulting. in the contrast, one can say God is not such a great gratitude filled creature. The dog will show more gratitude and the cat will not. So, for a cook, it is important that cat be this demonic imagery because the demonic is associated with a total lack of gratitude. With not appreciating God, not appreciating other people, etc. You could find it a force, but I would say Rav Cook is doing the same thing once again. Rav Cook is saying it can't be the Gemara is really interested in this from a practical basis. Oh, it is important to practically know, you know, how you could see demonic forces. So Rav Cook does not, I think, take a clear stand on whether or not, but he wants to tell you that it's important for the Gemara to associate negativity with a lack of gratitude. And that's why you have cats, and presumably in most traditions, you know, black things, you know, black is more foreboding, the nighttime, presumably that's why it's a black cat. Okay. Any comments on that? And then maybe we will sneak in the same. Okay? We're good. Any comments on the two demonic things? Okay, so just to sum up before I get to the Satan, I would say we've seen three points. Uh, one is in terms of the truth of uh, the demonic. I think I've opened up two approaches. One could simply say there were different approaches in the Jewish community and just say the Babylonians really did believe in them. But we identify today with the Palestinians who did not. A second approach would say, oh, well, all those Gemara about demons really mean something else. We said the Ram does it with a warning. 
We said the Meiri did it with the even pairs, and in the Meiri's case, there was a little bit more evidence because again, the Gemara said you don't worry about them; they don't worry about you. That made it sound a lot more psychosomatic than real. Then I wanted to say a third approach in Rafka, which is to say I'm interested in the reality of it. I'm interested in the significance. Chazal did not care about like a practical guide to demons. That was not what they were interested in. They're interested in telling us about how to navigate our lives. So they made a comment about information, what's relevant information, what's not. They made a comment about hats and gratitude. That's what Chazal were interested in. Okay, terrific. We now go to the last source. Okay, now this is a Gemara that if you don't mind, I'm going to just summarize uh, without reading it inside. But I am going to focus on one line. Okay, so this is a famous Gemara The truth is, some of you may have heard it from me already. Okay, I, I'm just hoping that uh, my mother and Omi Applebaum have, if they've heard from me already, they've forgotten it. Okay, and maybe, uh, okay, maybe Mitchell and Max also might have heard it, but they were, they were one funny story. You go to your Shalayim, you'll see that there's a whole group of um, retirees, retired Americans, who have a great time going to Shear all day. Right, some of you might have even been taking part of this, right? They'll go to Matan, they'll go to the OU Center. It's really a great group. Like, they're 75 and they're retired and they're just enjoying classes all the time. Okay, so I once gave a weekly shear to one of those groups. So at some point in the middle of the year, I couldn't remember if I'm touring a certain time already. So I asked them, is this a problem? So they go, Rabbi, don't worry. In our age, you just have to wait two weeks and you can do the same topic. It's okay. Okay, now, <laughs> I really believe that. I, I think they would have remembered two weeks later. But if later, I'm safe. Okay, here we go. So the Gemara Yoma says that they decided to get rid of the inclination for idolatry. Like, just like we have an idea that there's a Yetzirah for sexuality, right? A strong urge. So the idea seems to be that there used to be an urge to idolatry. And most of us don't experience it. We don't feel great, you know, urges when we pass. A but it seems to have been very popular in the first temple period and in the world in general. So maybe there was this kind of urge for idolatry. So here they have a good line. This is a line that I put in bold. They say to God, they say to each other, did we get this for any other reason than to receive a reward? That's why we have this inclination. We don't want it, and we don't want its reward. Right? We're willing to give it up. Now, the simplest shot would be, why is there a reward? Well, there's a reward for overcoming hardship, for overcoming challenges, for being able to hurdle. So if there's this inclination for idolatry and we can withstand it, we deserve more reward. I think that would be the simplest reading of the Gemara. And indeed, that's how Rashi reads it. But file that aside, because we're going to see another reading in a second, which I think is much more profound. Okay. Then they actually succeed. I'm skipping how they do it. And we can look this up, right? Go to Safari Online, Yoma 69b. They succeed in killing the Yetzirah for Vodazar. Then they say, hey, we've been Let's kill the Yetzirah for sexuality, too. We're great. right? We'll just wipe out all the problems in this world. Okay, but then the, they they put it in prison for three days. And the Yetzar for sexuality says, hang in there. If you kill me, the world comes to an end. Don't, don't do it. He warns them. So they do this three-day experiment. Sorry, before they imprison him, the Yetzar says that. And they can't find a fresh egg. And the idea seems to be that animals are not copulating. Like without this urge or instinct in the world, Right, um, nothing will be produced. Okay, that is their claim. So now they realize we're in trouble. If we kill it, then human beings won't reproduce and there won't be a world. Ah, now comes my other golden line. Should we ask for half mercy 
What would be half mercy? So Rashi says, what if you're only attracted to your spouse? Wouldn't it be great? What a great world. Uh, you're not, you don't find anybody else attractive in the world. There's no sexual urge. You're attracted to, says the Gemara, they don't give halves in heaven. Okay, let's review for one second again. They they say we don't want the reward we get for the Eight Sahara for idolatry, and they get rid of it. They then want to get rid of the Eight Sahara for sexuality, and they realize they can't because the world needs it. And then they say, Well, what about this halfway thing? Okay. So now we get to a beautiful shot that I guess it's so um so tempting that many Achronim say it. But Rav from Lublin, a Hasidic thinker I like a lot, and Rav Cook have a great principle. I think it's really a true principle. Their principle is that there's no force in the world that is purely good or purely bad. And they say that about character traits also. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that there aren't some character traits that are all things being equal better than others. I think we'd all prefer compassion to cruelty. right? We'd all prefer courage to cowardice. They, but they're saying that there's nothing that can't be pushed too far, nothing that doesn't have a use. So let's look at that. That means we might think that anger is an extremely dangerous trait. Indeed it is. But based on their principle, there must be a place in the world where anger is helpful. Arrogance could be a very dangerous trait, but there must be a place in the world where, conversely, compassion is the greatest thing ever. But someone could actually be too compassionate. There could be such a thing. You could be too humble. right? This is the Rav Tzadok and Rav Cook approach. Now, let's plug it in over here. Now, this is going to totally change our reading of the Gemara, and I think it's a very profound reading. What we say, all the forces in the world have to be a double-edged sword. Now, where do they realize this? They realize this when they get trying to, when they're contemplating getting rid of the Yetzirah for sexuality. Because what's the claim? Oh, this is great. You'll only be, let's get rid of it. But say, no, no, destroy the world. Ah, but what if we only had it for our spouse? So apparently, that's not the way the world was meant to work, right? The world was not meant to work that everything is guaranteed. The world was meant to be a struggle, right? There should be a, it's a moral training ground, this world. So you, when you have a force, the force has to go ways. So the Gemara says, they don't do it in heaven. They don't create a force that only has a positive uh, implication, right? You're only attracted to your spouse. If there's going to be sexual attraction in this world, it's going to be more complex than that. There's going to be a positive expression of it, and negative expression of it. Ah, if that's true, let's go back to the first part of the Gemara, because I think it might motivate us to reread it, right? Because again, if Rab Sadok's principle is true, wouldn't we have to then say by force that when he got rid of the Yetzar for Vodazara, something good was given up also? Now, did anyone guess? Let's say we say that the Yetzar for Vodazara was very prominent in the first temple period, and not so prominent in the second temple period, for the sake of argument. What positive thing seizes at the same time? Because again, he would have to have a positive flip side. Right? If we're getting rid of the negativity of paganism, the pagan worship, there must be something positive from that force that goes also. Mm-hmm. Ah, so I hear Elisha Shmala back on saying prophecy, and he's exactly right. That's what Tzadok says. Now you might say to me, well, what does prophecy have to do with paganism? But I actually think you could make a good case. Because again, one of the advantages of paganism is that God is much less abstract. God is much more concrete, right? If you have, and I just I think we should appreciate it. No, it's a funny thing for an Orthodox rabbi to say, but I think we can talk about what might be the advantage of paganism. Again, we have this talk of an abstract God. What if it's an idol I could touch, right? I could smell it. 
right there. My all my senses are involved in the worship. If you give a sense that there's certain uh, attraction to that, right? I don't have to just imagine it all in my head. I could touch it. I could taste it. Right? I think we can understand that, right? And maybe this for this intense experience of divinity, that's the same place where prophecy comes from, right? After all, isn't prophecy kind of this overwhelming of the senses of the divine presence? So you might say that desire or that inclination to have an overwhelming sense of the transcendent, right? An encounter, a flesh and blood encounter with divinity. In its positive manifestation, that leads to prophecy. In its negative manifestation, it leads to paganism. But then for Rav Kutzalik, it's really remarkable. What seems like this great story that they got rid of the Yitzhak for the Zara was a tricky move. It actually came with a cost also. And now, this is the best part, we can reread one line. Remember the line, you gave us this so we could receive a reward? We don't want its reward? For Rav Tzadok, that doesn't mean what Rashi said. Rashi says it means give up the reward for overcoming it. For Rav Tzadok, it means we'll give up the reward because since it's a force, it must have a positive manifestation. Actually giving up prophecy in the conjunction with giving up our inclination for paganism. So I think, just to sum up and take last comments here, I think Rav Tzadok has a very profound reading of the Gemara, and I think it's something we should think about in general. The idea that, you know, every force and every character trait has a positive and negative, I mind it's a truth. And it doesn't mind they're all equal. We're not talking like total relativism here. Like, again, compassion beats cruelty. But to ask ourselves, like, where is the place where the negative trait has place? Where is the place where the positive trait could be pushed too far? And to just go one last quote here. So Andre Jin, this is a great book called The God That Failed, about forming times to realize that it was a disaster. So he says something that could be taken too far, but I think it has truth to it. Man cannot be reformed from the outside. Changing heart is necessary. Meaning, sometimes we just think, how do we perfect society? By getting the right structure out there. Now, I certainly admit, I wouldn't overplake Jade's point. Right? A better structure is certainly better for humanity. But you know what? Corrupt human beings could ruin every structure. Right? So I think it's a little bit of a similar point there. It's not that there's this one structure that is foolproof. If only these forces are in the world, then we create a utopia. People are going to be corrupt. Corrupt any structure, any force. And people of more noble character can hopefully, and maybe it's not as easy, but can hopefully ennoble any structure. So that, again, so we've had a little taste of Judaism on the demonic, and now there's a Judaism on the Satan. And again, I think I would say what I said about Rav Kook, that kind of moving away from interest in the occult per se to what messages is being said, I think is really where it's at. I am less interested in whether we believe in a Satan or not, and more interested in what this Gemara is trying to say. And I think they're upset because it's given us a very profound reading that don't think we could just manipulate the force of the universe and make utopia. Every force is a double-edged sword, and the question is, how are we going to use those forces rather than they're going to totally neutralize? Okay, anybody with a closing comment or question on this year?